Welcome to Renegade Inc. Dr. Lawrence C. Smith is one of the world's leading climate scientists and author of Rivers of Power and the New North. We caught up with him to discuss the common theme in his books, how looking at the past is the only way to anticipate the future. So, as climate breakdown begins to bite, how will it reshape our societies, our economics and our politics? Lawrence Smith, welcome to Renegade Inc. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Your most recent book, uh, Rivers of Power, in it unequivocally you state that uh, to be able to anticipate the future, you have to have uh, full knowledge of the past. How do you, history of course doesn't repeat but it does rhyme, how do you uh, project into the future by looking uh, at the past? Well, in the case of rivers, it's remarkable how much these um, natural geographical features, which we pretty much take for granted, how often and how consistently they have been intertwined themselves in human existence from uh, prehistory uh, to today. And you're right, history never repeats. It does rhyme though. And um, if we take a, um, it's a historical view with these features, we see that rivers have always been essential to humankind always, and they still are, for some very basic fundamental reasons. Tell us. And um, Tell us what those reasons are. If you look at the different ways that rivers have been used over time, we see that the details change, but the underlying reasons stay the same. Right. Uh, for example, um, they have provide us, uh, provided us with natural capital in various forms. Uh, in ancient Egypt, that natural capital uh, assumed the form of a consistent flood water that miraculously would emerge from the desert each summer, flood the land, and then allow uh, crops to be planted and a tax-paying civilization to be sustained for over 3,000 years. Wow. Today, that natural capital still serves Egypt, but in the form of reliable hydropower from the Aswan Dam, most recently in the form of very high-priced real estate along the banks of um, the River Nile. A similar transformation, as you well know, is, uh, is underway in London right now with some uh, extreme, um, the, um, exciting riverfront developments uh, taking place in old former industrial properties that used to bring uh, natural capital in another form. My name's Kate McBride. I'm a fifth generation farmer from a property in Western New South Wales. I live on a half million acre sheep property. Um, we have about 15, 20,000 sheep and we get a heap of um, wild goats off it every single year as well. So um, I have a very hectic lifestyle. I'm also a uni student um, and I'm a healthy river ambassador. So for the last five or six years, I've been um, trying to highlight the issues that we're experiencing out in Western New South Wales, um, but also really trying to fight to better the policy um, that surrounds water issues in Australia. So the Murray-Darling Basin is a huge landmass part of Australia. Over 2 million people live, work and rely on the water that comes from the Murray-Darling Basin. And we have massive amounts of critically important um, internationally recognised wetlands all over the place. So it's actually quite um, a delicate, balanced ecosystem. And we, we have been taking too much from it for too long. Um, but it's a beautiful part of Australia and I'm very lucky to be living in it. So I was born and brought up on the Darling River. Um, my family's property is right on it. And so I grew up 
um, having a great respect for the river, but also understanding how important it was um, for our family station. And I remember I did all my schooling down in town and I remember going back in about 2015 after I'd just finished school and all of a sudden the Darling River that I'd grown up to know that was there, that was a reliable source of water, all of a sudden it was bone dry. And that's first when I realised that something was really wrong here and um, something needed to change. And so for about eight and a half months, we had absolutely no river. Um, and that was really tough. Like, I think we were all just trying to work out what had gone wrong. Why was this happening for the first time ever? Um, and then we got water back and we thought, okay, this will be all right. But we recognised that there was still a lot of issues. And then for a second time, um, only about two years after the first time, our river was bone dry again. And that's when we saw um, these videos emerge. And one of them I took that went viral of these mass fish deaths. And we saw um, huge amounts of blue green algae that was killing the livestock. It was killing our native animals. We saw kangaroos dying all over the place. What's caused this, why we've got no water is over extraction. So we're, we're just taking too much water from a really delicate ecosystem. Um, it's going to particular crops um, in particular for irrigation uses and we're not letting that water flow down um, into the ecosystems and past these communities that really rely on it and the other issue is mismanagement in Australia we're really not managing our water and properly enough and I said before how delicate our water systems are here how we don't have very much water we are I'm in South Australia today and we're the driest inhabited state on the driest inhabited continent like we need to be really careful about what we're doing with water but we're not being smart enough for it right now we're seeing complete ecosystems collapse we're seeing mass fish kills we're seeing a huge amount of other animals dying um, and it's absolutely heartbreaking and it's not just about animals or communities or the fact that farmers don't have water flowing down their our rivers I mean the traditional owners of Australia the Aboriginal people and particularly the traditional owners of where I'm from the Barkindji people they have such a deep connection to this river and that's what we're really trying to highlight as well one of the local townships near me has a life expectancy of 37 for males and 42 for females. And they, we know, we've got um, report after report showing that when there's water in the river, crime rate decreases and life expectancy increases. I mean, this isn't just about animals dying or, or farmers losing their livelihood. This is people losing their lives. And unfortunately, the Australian government is not doing enough. They are not looking after their country people um, and we are being left out to die. Isn't it amazing that uh, civilizations are um, based around the natural world? But um, if you were to speak to uh, a lot of economists, for instance, they don't see that. They don't see the natural capital that you talk about in this river. They actually just think, well, you know, we can put it in a model. Civilizations basing themselves around the natural world, as opposed to hubristic economists saying, actually, we're above all this. How do you make the connection again with, to, and say to people, actually, we are reliant on nature. This is our home. Our home isn't a bunch of assumptions uh, and rational models in a textbook. That is an excellent point. I'm really glad you made it. Uh, in fact, I talk about that exactly that um, glaring absence of the natural world from the purview of economists and also political scientists. Right. Uh, both of these academic fields sort of view the human enterprise as somehow divorced from the natural world. And this is not to say that environmental determinism is the right approach either. I mean, we are not slaves to the physical world, but nor are we completely removed from it. And I agree with you. This is what's lacking in uh, economic uh, and political science assessments. For example, there was a, an important book 
uh, came out a few years ago called the, the Size and Shape of Nations. And it's a massive tome. It's this thick. Uh, a reading of that book will not find, um, you know, we'll, we'll find all kinds of references to democracy versus totalitarian governments, uh, to the importance of ethnicity and language, many, many human dimensions, which are, of course, very, very important. Nowhere in them will you find any mention, not a single word of the importance of mountain ranges, coastlines, or rivers. Yet, when um, a student and I did a global mapping of political boundaries, meaning the size and shapes of nations, we, find we found an enormous amount of overlap with physical as well as human constructs. So it's a blend of both. Yes, we are human. We are distinctly human. We're not slaves to the natural world. We're not, uh, you know, bears or something, but uh, nor are we completely separated from it. When uh, we talk and think about the nation state, is the nation state in the face of climate breakdown becoming an obsolete idea? If you think uh, from a river context, if a river um, transcends two nation states, they have to collaborate and get on because ultimately uh, that is a life force, that river. Is the nation state uh, in the face of climate change uh, a, a obsolete idea? I'm not a political scientist, so this is venturing a little far afield for me. But uh, I will say my personal opinion on that has changed uh, today versus, say, four to five years ago. Four to five years ago, we seem to be headed very much towards a planet of increased cooperation, globalization, uh, interconnectedness. But as the, um, the elections showed, as Brexit has showed, uh, as the elections in my own country, uh, you know, have shown the uh, the nation state is still a very strong idea, uh, and nationalism is still a a uh, important force in the views of everyday people. So I do not think it is an obsolete uh, obsolete idea. Yet you raise a good point about the power and importance of rivers in forcing cooperation between nations. And this is a remarkable um, good news story that we see around the planet where neighboring nation states that are sworn enemies, you know, think um, Pakistan and India, you know, think uh, Israel and a host of its neighbors, uh, even these sworn enemies have found ways to set aside their differences to forge cooperative uh, legal agreements to share their transboundary rivers. Um, India and Pakistan have gone to war at least four times since the signing of um, the Indus Water Treaty in the early 1960s, yet they have never violated the terms of that treaty. Uh, basically, rivers are too important to risk losing access to uh, in a war. When uh, we then think in those terms about um, the New North, which is the book prior to this one, you uh, cite the Arctic as a uh, theatre, if you like, of collaboration. The, um, you know, the Arctic, I have been to the Arctic many times, and I must say it is one of the most um, misunderstood uh, regions on the planet. It's certainly iconic. We all recognise that. But uh, what is perhaps less understood is that this is not an open frontier, it is not a unpopulated place. It is not a, um, a, um, a, a ungoverned place. These, um, the Arctic and the subarctic, which is a much vaster area of land and seas below the Arctic Circle, uh, is peaceably governed by eight nations 
uh, with a great deal in common, um, peaceful, friendly borders for the most part, some sweeping um, common populations and languages among indigenous groups, many facing similar problems and, and challenges ranging from resource extraction by southern capitals um, to you know, protecting um, indigenous languages and, and traditions. What's interesting about this place is the fervor in which the world has taken an interest in it, in many ways driven by climate change and the extreme amplification of climate change that we're seeing in the region. But if you travel there, as I have, you will see that climate change is just one of several trends, concerns facing the region, uh, ones that are quite um, you know, prevalent all over the, the rest of the world as well, having to do with resource extraction, uh, the power of local communities, uh, the role of multinational corporations and so forth. When we think about the New North then, uh, through the Arctic context, if you like, what does that New North look like? What does the world in 2050 uh, look like from here? Well, what the Arctic and subarctic, what the New North will look like in the future depends very much on some big choices we're in the process of making now. One of the very biggest uh, will be, will we continue to burn fossil fuels as our energy base or not. The, um, the Arctic and subarctic contain very large reserves of oil and natural gas. And at the moment, they are largely non-recoverable, economically speaking. And should we as a global society get serious about weaning off of fossil fuels, they will remain non-recoverable and non-economic. Should we decide to proceed as we have, uh, then they will become economic. And that single choice, perhaps more than any other, will govern what the new North will look like by the year 2050. The second big decision that will govern what the new North will look like by 2050 is whether the world resumes its path towards greater global integration. That was the case up until about five to six years ago or whether that trend, which has been lurching along since the end of the Second World War, will in fact reverse and we will become more, and we do become more multipolar, more fractious, more fragmented, as um, some of the uh, political signs of recent years might suggest. That is another big fork in the road that will shape not only what the new North will look like in the year 2050, but the rest of the world as well. Well, as you talk about um, the two big moments, if you like, um, about uh, whether we continue burning fossil fuel and also uh, whether we collaborate, whether globalization, we use it for good. Uh, and um, thinking about the Arctic, uh, the options there are the Americans and the Russians can have a proper tear up uh, or actually they can sit down like adults uh, around a table and say, how best are we going to manage this? Where's the sort of balance of probability side of things? What, what do you foresee happening between you know, economic superpowers coming together uh, and working out whether they can collaborate or not? Until very recently, we're um, honoring 
the Taiwan tradition of cooperation uh, in the Arctic. And the previous uh, U.S. administration rather shattered that with a um, you know, deeply impactful speech by then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who uh, more or less ripped up that playbook uh, with a visit to, um, to with an important speech um, uh, in Greenland. And the, what was being upended is um, a rather unique political polity that was invented in the Arctic and is now being studied as a model for other parts of the world. And that um, remarkably collaborative polity is called the Arctic Council. It's not a government and it's not a government agency, but it is an international policy group that is, um, has bylaws and memberships of all of the Arctic countries. And while this organization is not allowed to touch upon matters of security, or else it never would have been granted a charter, but uh, it is able to touch, tackle many other problems um, unique to the region and you know, problems that face the whole world, really, regarding pollution and economic development and so forth. With so much at stake, uh, is it the case that the Arctic could be a blueprint for how nations begin to collaborate and get on with each other in the face of climate breakdown, which, let's face it, instead of fighting wars against each other, they should understand what the real enemy is, which is uh, degradation of the planet uh, and, and global warming, and get behind uh, one another to fight that battle as opposed to the, the wars of old, which are stuffed with waste, ignorance, uh, and economic devastation. I think everyone uh, here today would agree that that's what we should be doing and we would hope that that's what we will do in the future. One of the reasons the Arctic has been so successful with some of these models that we're talking about is because the stakes there are pretty darn low. We would never see a uh, international polity like the Arctic Council formed uh, over the Straits of Hormuz, for example. Right. But that's not to say just because they're invented in a place where the conditions allow their invention, that's not to say they don't have influence and can't become models for elsewhere in the world. The, the two great um, incubator projects that have come out of the Arctic are the Arctic Council and return of home rule and land, land claims to indigenous peoples. Wow. Uh, many of whom their, their land claims were not extinguished by old colonial treaties or are now being revisited. And this has really caught momentum in the Arctic more than most other places in the world. And those agreements are now being examined by other groups, for example, uh, indigenous tribes in Amazonia uh, as, as models to pursue. So I think we have a lot to learn from the Arctic and not from the Arctic itself, as much as the cooperative frameworks that have emerged from the nations that govern there. We're in the middle of a like climate crisis. The, the reason that Greenpeace has taking a strong stance against like any more extraction of fossil fuels in particular in the arctic is that the world's like scientists the best scientists of the world are clear on that the fossil fuels including oil need to remain in the ground and the worst place where you could continue that push for extracting even more oil is up in the sensitive arctic a lot of people like like abroad both People, politicians, uh, philosophers are pointing to the Norwegian, the Norwegian paradox being that when it comes to electrical cars, uh, Norway is in the forefront globally. We are phasing out the usage of fossil fuels in Norway. 
But when it comes to our major emissions, the emissions from Norway that are impacting the world climate, we are basically the oil elephant like in the room. The emissions from Norwegian oil production abroad, from the usage of that oil, is 10 times as high as all the other Norwegian emissions combined. Yet, we are doing nothing about it because like in the short run, we are earning a lot of money and we find it like immoral, deeply irresponsible and not in line with our Paris commitments. We're living in, in, in urgent times, like, like urgent times when it comes to the need for, for rapid uh, actions. The scientists have said that the world, and that obviously includes Norway, already have found more fossil fuels than we can afford to burn if to avoid the most catastrophic consequences of climate change. Yet, like we are like still looking for, 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 for more. And Norway is one of those countries. The implication is uh, that as we continue to ignore the scientists and look for even more oil in the Arctic, the sea ice is melting even more like quickly, allowing for more exploratory drilling, uh, allowing for the northern route from, from Norway over to, to, um, to, to Asia. Like all of, all of those like things that is caused by the increased oil drilling is allowing for even more oil drilling. And we need to get out of that vicious circle and we need to get out of it quickly. At the moment, it's like in the short term profitable for the oil companies to continue drilling for oil. It's, it's profitable for, for fishermen to empty the oceans for, for fish. Like that, that like will not change unless we see political like actions. So we need the, the, the politicians to act in the best interest of the companies in the long term and the people and, and nature to change that business dynamic that is so flawed at the moment because it is not enough profitable to actually protect, protect the planet we all dependent on. People who can least afford climate breakdown are the ones uh, often footing the bill. Uh, when you look through the prism of the New North uh, and the thinking that has come out of that book, which areas in the world do you see suffering the most from climate breakdown? And what will be the logical conclusion of climate migrants if those lands have be become uninhabitable? I'm glad you asked that question because to be very clear, any small handful of gains that might be enjoyed by a, a, a little club of rich countries in the North will be more than overwhelmingly countered by the much vaster suffering populations to the South. Around the equator, we are seeing the arrival of novel climates. These are climates warmer than anything that has been seen before in uh, the history of modern humankind. We are seeing species extinctions at a rate that is extraordinary, one of the, one of the great geological extinction periods of the Earth's history. Uh, these negative repercussions are being experienced all around the planet. And for sure, we have a tough road ahead from a planetary point of view. And the phenomenon of the New North is a but one small uh, part in that overall uh, story where we really need to get to work and make some changes. 
I often say this on this program, we hear that um, analysis uh, and often feel helpless because we think, oh, what, what can little old me do about this? Um, what are the practical steps? Obviously, it starts with awareness. What are the other practical steps that man, woman on the street can take uh, when we're starting well, to think about climate breakdown? I think it's important for everyone to understand that there's good news and bad news. The good news is we know what the solutions are. This is not mysterious right. anymore. Right. We have the technological abilities to deal with this problem. We have the adequate scientific knowledge of the scope of the problem and some of the um, potential risks from nonlinearities, which could make the problem even worse than we already know it's going to be. Um, but you're right. There's very little that any one individual person can do and um, except to vote because it's now a political problem. It is a, it is a 100% problem of political will. We have the solutions in hand and we know the science. And switching over to efficient appliances and light bulbs is nice and it helps a few percent and we should all do it. But its main value, to be very honest, is more indoctrinating a way of thinking and prioritizing efficiencies and new energy forms as opposed to actually making much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. We need to vote in governments that are willing to um, tell us what we don't want to hear, and that's a challenge. I think what I've learned from the Trump presidency and now the Biden presidency is how influential one person really can be if it's the right person in a position of power. And I mean, that's a very, you mentioned all the climate policies that were you know, broken by the previous administration and now being signed up for again in rapid course and matters of days. Uh, I have witnessed similar impact by single individuals uh, who are CEOs of major companies. And often the pressures on those CEOs are coming from within, coming from their, with, from their own employees. Uh, and this goes even for the big fossil fuel companies like you know, BP, you name it, ExxonMobil, they, they, all of them are um, influenced from within and leadership and agencies and companies on every level can, can make a real difference. But sadly, at the individual level, I think focusing on one's personal life it's great, but it's not enough. Lawrence Smith, congratulations on Rivers of Power and also congratulations on the New North, which we love. Uh, oh, uh, thanks. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, anytime. I really enjoyed it. Great questions and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.